We are up to mitzvah number 98. And again, we are continuing with the description of the functions and the processes and the vessels of the temple and the tabernacle. And we are now up to the menorah. We talked about in the past about the building of the temple in general and about the lechem aponim, the showbreads. And now we're talking about the menorah. Of course, menorah is one of the most iconic of the vessels in the temple. And we have mitzvah number 98, and that is to prepare and to clean and to kindle the lamps of the menorah. The verse tells us in Exodus chapter 27 that the lights of the menorah, they were organized and they were tended to by Aaron and his sons and they are lit every day. And that is the mitzvah that we're up to right now, mitzvah number 98. Now the Sefer HaChinuch tells us that this mitzvah is comprised of three different parts. Number one, you have to clean out the ashes and the residue that was in the lamps from the previous night. And you have to prepare the new wicks and the new oil for the next kindling. And finally, the third part is the actual kindling in the evening. And all that is wrapped into one mitzvah, mitzvah number 98. Now, of course, the menorah was one of the most iconic vessels in in the temple. We talked about the ark in the past. And the table, we're soon going to get to the inner golden altar. And that is where the katoris was lit. But now we're talking about the menorah. And the menorah, quite interestingly, was hewn from a single block of gold. You couldn't make it separately and just attach them and weld them together. And all of the menorah together with its tongs that were used to pull out the wicks. And the spoons to clean out the cups, it was all made out of a single talent of gold, roughly 150 pounds of gold. Now, it's interesting, when the menorah was made, if you look at chapter 25 of Exodus and you read the Rashi commentary, it's interesting that this this particular vessel stymied Moshe. And Rashi tells us in a few different places, he tells us that Moshe was having a hard time understanding what it was. And God was describing it and Moshe didn't understand it. And God had to superimpose a picture of the menorah with all its elaborate and intricate uh, etchings and cups and flowers and knobs and all that. They might have to impose that in the image of fire upon the mountain. And even after God showed it to Moshe, Moshe still wasn't able to understand it. And all he did was he took the block of gold and threw it into a fire and the menorah was made on its own, almost by God. So there's something really mysterious about the menorah that eluded even Moshe. So what did it look like? What's the menorah made like? So as we mentioned, it's made out of a single block of gold. It's going to be pure gold, hammered out of a single block. On the base, there were three legs. Out of the base comes the single, the middle shaft. And that went, and that went straight up top. And then out of the middle branch came six other branches, three on each side for a total of seven branches. So three to the right and three to the left. And it was embellished with decorative cups and knobs and flowers. And the Ram does a whole tally for us. If you read the verse, it's a little confusing, but the Ram does a whole tally for us. There were 22 different cups etched 
into the branches of the menorah, and there were 11 knobs etched into the menorah, and nine flowers, and the cups, we are told, were engraved like almonds, and it was all very intricately and finely detailed embellishments, all hammered out of a single block of gold. On the top of these seven branches were, of course, the seven lamps. In the seven lamps, you held the olive oil and the wick, and that was all faced towards the middle. So the three on the right were facing towards the left, and the three on the left were facing towards the right. And then the middle, the middle lamp, which is called the western lamp, as we shall see, was facing out towards the holy of holies. And mitzvah number 98 is the whole mitzvah containing the actual process of tending to the menorah and lighting the lamps. And this was all done by the Kohen. So to clean it out and remove the ashes and remove the wick. And that was all placed by the ashes near the altar. So of course, every night the sacrifices were burnt and in the morning the Kohen came and removed the ashes and that was placed in a, in a special place at the foot, at the base of the altar. Where those ashes were placed, the ashes and the residue of the manure was placed as well. Any excess oil from the previous night was cleansed, was wiped clean. The Kohen would add new oil and he would place new wicks and the wicks were told have to be really good wicks so that the light would emerge really nicely. And this was lit every single day, including, of course, Shabbos. One of the things that I'll do on Shabbos, when I'll make a new fire, but as is true with other sacrifices in the temple, the services and the sacrifices in the temple override Shabbos. The verse says explicitly, it's got to be done every day, and that's revealing to us that this, in fact, overrides the laws of Shabbos. The lamps were cleaned out in the morning and prepared in the morning, and then they were lit at night. And again, the the six outer lamps were directed towards the middle one, and the oil that must be used, it's got to be clean, virgin olive oil, only the first drop, and every lamp got a half of a log, which is a Talmudic measurement, a half of a log of oil. How much is a log? This is somewhere between 11.7 and 20.3 fluid ounces. So that's the amount. Now, why would they use that particular amount? So Rashi tells us, the Talmud tells us that the objective or the, the minimum requirement is that the oil lasts the entire night. So if you're going to light it in the evening, it's going to, going to burn throughout the whole night and last until the morning. But we know, of course, the year... The seasons, there are different lengths of the night. In the winter, the day is shorter and the night is longer. In the summer, it's reversed. The day is longer and the night is shorter. So the Talmud tells us, this is featured in Rashi as well, that the estimate of how much oil is needed for the longest night of the year was a half of a log. And therefore, that was the standard unit of oil that was placed in every night, regardless of whether or not it was the winter or the summer. It's okay if it goes longer than needed, as long as, you know, on the the longest night, 
of the year, there is sufficient oil to last the whole night. That is what was placed every single night. And you know what? There's no big deal if it extends past the minimum time where it has to light until. Now, it's important to note that there is at least one opinion that says that the menorah was lit twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. And in that case, it was prepared also twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. Now, the Western lamp, as it's called, according to the Sefer Chinuch, the book that we are using to navigate through the mitzvos, the Western lamp was the middle one. Now, why was it called Western? The menorah was positioned north-south in the sanctuary. And therefore, all the lamps are equidistant. They're all, fa- they're all just, they're on a north-south is that a longitudinal? I think longitudinal direction. And therefore, they're, they're all equally west and east because they're on the axis. The axis they're on is north-south. But the way he explains it is that the, the middle one, it had a longer wick, which was positioned, which was directed towards the Holy of Holies, directed westward, and therefore, it was considered the western candle. Now, unlike the rest of the candles, that, they're, uh, that they are lit at night, and they light until the morning, and in the morning they are extinguished, but they run out of oil, clean it out, and prepare for the following night. The western candle, the western lamp, must be lit at all times, and therefore if it ever gets extinguished, it must be relit. And unlike the rest of the lamps of the menorah, which are lit from each other, which means you, you, just, you take the wick and you just draw it out, and you light it from one of the neighboring candles, the western lamp, that's the most uh, important one for some reason or on, on, on one dimension, and therefore it can only be relit from the fire upon the altar. So you have to take it and bring it to the fire on the altar. That is the fire that must source the light for the western lamp in the event that it is extinguished. Now the Talmud tells us that certainly during the first temple era, there were times where the Western lamp would not be extinguished for an entire year. Why? It was considered to be somewhat miraculous that nothing could ever knock the light off the Western lamp. But that was a, that was, that was symbolic of the fact that the Almighty was very pleased with the Jewish nation. Now, the way the, they are lit on a typical night is they are lit in a staggered fashion. First, they would light five of the lamps, and then they would light the other two. And the Ram tells us that that makes a bigger impact. It makes it, you know, because you light it in a staggered fashion, it makes the process and the ceremony more important, and it would land a bigger punch. So that's the menorah, and this is mitzvah number 98, the mitzvah to kindle the menorah and to tend to it, and everything that comes with tending and cleaning and preparing, and of course, Kindling the menorah. Now, with every mitzvah, we try to figure out what are the reasons behind it. And we always remind ourselves that the ultimate reason is because that's what the Almighty wants. And that's the best reason for any mitzvah. It's a decree of our Creator. But nevertheless, it is helpful and useful for us to try to understand it on our level. What are the symbolisms? What are the messages? What are the takeaways? What are the lessons that we can learn from every mitzvah? What are things that we can maybe apply to ourselves? You know, we haven't had the temple in the 1900 and uh, 
30 or 40 years. It's been a while. And uh, we still learn about this. And all 613 mitzvahs are still obligatory to us. And in fact, it's more important to learn about the mitzvah when we cannot fulfill it than when we can. Because if we actually had a menorah, we would have to know how to do it. But there would be a way to actually fulfill it. Now that we don't have a menorah, the only way to fulfill it, the only way to get the power of that particular part of the 613 accomplishments that we need from Torah is via the study. And therefore, it's important for us to ponder the question, what is the reason, what are some of the reasons that are offered by our sages? So the Sefer Chinuch, as he often does, he makes it very relevant and very practical and very simple. And he, in fact, says that. He says, there's lots of very complicated reasons that they talk about, lots of symbolism and Kabbalistic ideas in the menorah, but I'm going to give you something really simple. So he says that when there is a candelabra lit in the house of God, that adds stature and honor and distinction and glory and splendor to the house of God. And that's the way of important places that are always illuminated at night. You go to the White House at night, there are, there are lights directed on the house, so it's always lit. Why? It's very expensive to light it, but it adds a certain distinction to it because it's, it's lit even at night. Similarly, of course, on a very different level, the house of God is always going to be illuminated. And the reason, says the Sefer Chenoch, is to instill awe and humility in the hearts of men. And when we say men, of course, we mean humanity. And he explains that when you do something and you experience something, and even if you're just simulating something, that will affect your heart. This is one of the major principles of the Sefer HaChinuch, that what you do determines who you are. And sometimes you got to fake it until you make it. If you just simulate being a, being a good person and refining your character, that will achieve the desired result of, in fact, turning you into that character. I always like to tell people, it's a funny joke, but I think it's, there's some truth to it. You don't really need to be a good person. You don't. You just have to fake it for like 100 years. That's it. You don't have to actually change. Just just fake it for about 100 years or so. And that's it. You're good. I tell young, uh, young grooms, you don't actually, actually have to be a good husband. You just need to pretend for 70, 80, 90 years. That's it. Just, just simulate it. Make believe. It's not real, of course. <laughs> you know, your bad character is still very much present. But nevertheless, you could just pretend. You pretend for 70 years, then you are good. But of course, the truth is, when you do pretend, when you do simulate behavior, it does actually change who you are. We don't know the causality of how Mitzvot actually change us. But what we do know is that the people that are very serious and fastidious about Torah and mitzvot, they are in fact the most refined people that we can meet. And how does it work? We don't know. We didn't understand, you know, the pharmacology, so to speak, of how the prescriptions of Torah and mitzvot 
affect us and change us. We don't understand that. That's, that's God's job to figure that out. God, so to speak, is the, is the chemist, is the pharmacist who knows exactly what we need to refine ourselves. But what we do know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say, that when people do follow the Torah and take it very seriously, they end up being very refined and noble and elevated people. Now, beyond this idea, we have many, many other ideas that are told to us by the sages and the commentators about the menorah. So, for example, there are seven branches of the menorah, and that corresponds, we are told, to the seven days of the week. And the middle branch, everything's directed towards the middle branch, that corresponds to Shabbos. You have the three days before Shabbos and the three days after Shabbos, and that all is directed towards Shabbos. Shabbos is the one source, so to speak, of divine blessing. We are told that the Almighty dispenses blessing on weekly increments, and it's all given through Shabbos, and that's why Shabbos is called the Mikar HaBracha, the source of blessing. And that provides light to the rest of the week, and therefore the candles are directed towards the middle because that's where they draw their energy uh, from. And that's the idea, one of the symbolisms behind the menorah. Rabbeinu Bechaya has a very nice piece in chapter 25 of Exodus, and he says some really wonderful things about the menorah. He says that the light of the menorah provides pleasure for the soul. The soul is compared to a candle. The verse tells us in scripture, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam. The candle of God is the soul of man. This is Proverbs chapter 20. There is some sort of similarity between a candle, between fire, between light, and the soul. Of course, that's why we light a yardside candle for the soul of the departed. And even though the light of the soul is very different than the physical light of the candle, nevertheless, there's some sort of connection, some sort of benefit that happens to the soul when it gazes upon a candle. What that means, of course, it's a very advanced idea, but that is one of the ideas that are shared regarding the menorah. Moreover, he says that there are seven other planets besides for Earth. And I always say that the uh, the sages were not uh, fooled by Pluto. They knew it wasn't a real planet. <laughs> they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't fall for the head fake of Pluto. Seven of the planets, and this corresponds on some sort of cosmic level, the menorah, the seven branches of the menorah corresponds to that. It corresponds to Torah. And Torah is the wisdom that incorporates all the other wisdoms in the world. And he mentions even the seven liberal arts of the Greeks, astronomy, mathematics, geometry, music, rhetoric, grammar, and logic. And all that's incorporated in Torah. And he even adds that the six branches correspond to the six ends of the world. And there are 22 cups that are etched into the menorah, and that corresponds to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 different forces in the world, and there are 22 different parts of man, and the knobs correspond to angels, and the cups correspond to the galaxies, and the flowers correspond to this world, all kinds of really interesting symbolism that is featured in the Kabbalistic literature 
about the menorah. One of the main ideas is that the menorah corresponds to Torah. Now, it's interesting that the Ark also corresponds to Torah. The Ark, of course, that was that was holding the actual, the actual tablets, both the broken and unbroken tablets. And the Torah scroll that Moshe wrote was either inside the Ark or right next to the Ark. But certainly the Ark represents Torah. And as we mentioned in the past, a Torah scholar has to be like the Ark, gold inside and gold outside. So how could you have two different vessels corresponding to, to Torah? So this is an interesting question that on the Parsha podcast that I am fortunate enough to host this year, Parsha's Truma, the whole, the whole podcast was dedicated to this question. What are the two types of Torah that are corresponded to by the Ark and by the Menorah? If you want to listen to it, it's called The Mystery of the Menorah. Highly recommended. And the basic idea that I said, I'll just spoil it for you, is that the menorah is like the extension of the ark. The ark, that's like mosaic Torah. Moshe got his Torah from God directly. In that transmission, there's, there's, it's completely perfect. The menorah is when Moshe gives the Torah to us and we have to perpetuate it and there is risk of human fallibility causing a problem in the transmission, that is represented by the menorah. And that's why I speculated, that's why Moshe had such a hard time with the menorah. Because the menorah is when, so to speak, the Torah is in human hands, and it's not just coming directly from God with scintillating clarity. As a result, there is all this extra work that we need to do to perpetuate the Torah. That's why Moshe had such a hard time with that. Because his Torah, so to speak, or his link in the chain was directly from God as symbolized by the Ark. And therefore, the menorah was difficult for him to wrap his head around. Others suggest that there is, of course, the written Torah and the oral Torah. And perhaps the written Torah is represented by the Ark and the oral Torah is represented by the menorah. And it is noteworthy that the festival of Hanukkah, that orients, of course, around the menorah and the lighting of the menorah, that is often used to mark, so to speak, the beginning of the explosion of oral Torah amongst the nation when we no longer had prophecy and we no longer had really kings of our own and the Jewish nation was separated. There were Jews in Babylon and Jews elsewhere in the Middle East and North Africa. And the second temple quite wasn't really like the first temple. And that's kind of the moment where oral Torah really becomes much more important because it's what keeps us together. And uh, the role of the sages is amplified. There is a lot of literature about that, how the menorah symbolizes oral Torah as well. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to always say another idea, that the menorah and the kindling of the menorah symbolizes pedagogy, education, and the transmission of our faith and tradition from one generation to another generation. You have to take one existing fire and touch it towards the wick, the unlit wick. And you have to hold it there until the unlit wick becomes lit on its own. And that's the process of pedagogy. 
where the parent or the educator whose candle, so to speak, is already lit, touches, so to speak, the unlit candle and makes it independent, so to speak. It could be lit on its own. So there's a lot of uh, the symbolism and the ideas behind the menorah that relate to pedagogy and the transmission, so to speak, of the light of one generation to the successive generation. Where is the menorah now? Of course, today we don't have a temple. We're close. We're within striking distance. You know, the country with the largest Jewish population is, of course, Israel for the first time in thousands of years. So we're, we're getting close to coming home. We don't have a temple. We don't really have control over Temple Mount. There's a lot of politics and controversy about control over Temple Mount today. But we don't have a temple and we don't have these vessels. And there are a lot of people who are concerned or at least curious about the identity and the location and the whole process of the reestablishment of the temple and the Sanhedrin and really Jewish sovereignty, Torah sovereignty over the land. Now, unlike the Ark, we did have the menorah in the second temple and it disappeared. And there was all kinds of speculation and theories as to where it is today. And the most notable artifact of this discussion is, of course, the Arch of Titus in Rome. Titus was the Roman general who oversaw the siege of Jerusalem. His father was Vespasian, who was summoned back to Rome after the siege had already begun. He was summoned back to become the emperor. And he handed off the siege to his son, Titus. And he was one who ultimately destroyed the temple and sacked Jerusalem and plundered Jerusalem, of course, with many, many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jewish dead and brought all the booty back to Rome. And that is depicted in the triumphal Arch of Titus in Rome. And in that arch, there is a picture of them carrying the menorah, what appears to be the menorah, back to Rome. That has lent all kinds of speculation and theory to the idea that the menorah is actually somewhere in Rome, maybe in the coffers of the Vatican. Who knows? Some have suggested that maybe this was a decoy. The priests knew that the Romans were about to enter and the conquest was imminent and they had a few extra menorahs as decoys and the real one they actually hid. That's one theory. And that theory is based upon the idea that if you look at the base of the menorah as featured in the Arch of Titus, it seems like there are images etched upon the base. And we know images are a big no-no in the temple, but really in our religion. Why would there be images upon the menorah? That perhaps is reason to suggest or to speculate that the menorah that they took was, in fact, a decoy. Where is it today? Who knows? Maybe it's in Rome. Rome was sacked in the 5th or 4th century. So who knows where it is today? Where it is, is, of course, a great mystery. 
but we hope to one day be able to participate in this mitzvah. Of course, as a non-Kohen, I'm not eligible, but to witness this, to be privy to this, the mitzvah number 98, the mitzvah of the preparing and the tending to and the kindling of the menorah in the temple, may we all be so fortunate to witness that glorious day. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.